following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Well, well, Christmas Day has passed. Um, You can take your manger scenes down now, but leave out the wise men, right? We talked about this last week, right? Leave them out on the lawn and then have them just progressively over the next few months get closer and closer to the house. And that'll be a, an accurate depiction of what really happened. You know, it might give you an opportunity with your neighbors. Say, what's going on? In fact, we saw a house yesterday, my wife and I, just the wise men were standing out there. So maybe they go to Calvary Bible Church. But in any case, we've moved through Christmas. Now we're approaching the year 2015. It's right around the corner. And with that, I'd also like to just remind you that uh, you're welcome to come to my daughter Bethany's wedding with Jonathan Lee here Thursday, New Year's Day, 2 o'clock. You're all invited as part of our family. And while they're going to be bringing in the new year with a wedding, um, most of the rest of us will probably be bringing in our new year with the thing that we typically do each year. Jason mentioned it a few uh, weeks ago, the New Year's resolutions, right? Some perhaps have more achievable ones than others. But let's just say this New Year's Day, you're, you're sitting in front of your television, you're watching a bowl game, a- after the wedding, of course, and as you're, as you're there sitting on the couch eating your leftover Christmas desserts, you see this commercial. And it's this guy who's running, and he's running through a finish line, and he's triumphantly raising his arms as he passes through that line, and then it, it hits you. I'm going to run a race this year. That's my New Year's resolution. I'm going to run a marathon. So you decide it that day. The next day you go out to Big Five, between bowl games, of course, and and you pick up, you buy some really nice shoes, uh, matching shorts and a shirt. When you come back home, you go online and you find out there's a marathon in Camarillo on January 4th. So you say, hey, great, I can just go right up to 101. I can, I can, resol- I can meet this New Year's resolution before even the first week is done. So you're extremely excited. Then comes the day. You're standing there at the starting line. You've got your new Nikes on. You've got your shorts, your shirt. You're, you've even noticed, uh, you learned a few stretches while you were standing in line at Big Five looking at the running book. And so you're trying those out. Then the gun sounds. And you're off. You're amazed at how you're able to keep pace with the guys up front. At least for the first couple blocks. <laughs> then your pace slows down a little slows down a little more, then a little more, and pretty soon even the old guys have run past you, and then then the kids are following them, and finally an old lady is walking her dog passes by. (laughs) So by the time you've reached the one mile marker, you're done. You collapse. You sit there on the sidewalk. Your muscles are burning. You've got a cramp in your calf. You're done for the day, only after 5,280 feet. What happened? You were passionate about it, right? You were excited. You were motivated. You even dropped 250 bucks in order to get those shoes and shorts. You thought you were in decent shape. What with all those walks from the couch to the fridge during the holiday season. You even threw up a prayer just before the race started. But what happened? What happened? Why couldn't you even get past the mile? Answer's obvious, right? You didn't train for it. You weren't prepared. 
You didn't put the effort and and time in that's required to run 26.2 miles straight. And yet, brothers and sisters, how often in the Christian life do we expect to be spiritually mature, to be over a certain sin or to know more scripture or to be able to share the gospel more effectively or to have this amazing prayer life or be more involved in serving the body or be better able to embrace trials? How often do we expect this spiritual maturity and yet do nothing to prepare ourselves for that, to train ourselves for that, to put in the effort that's required to get there? You know, we often have this mentality so often in the Christian life that, you know, if I just, if I want it bad enough and I tell God about it, that he instantly makes it happen. Isn't it by his grace? I mean, I, I can't make myself mature. Doesn't God have to do that? Isn't it his work in me? Well, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Here at Calvary Bible Church, we have made 2015 the year of the spiritual disciplines. And we'll talk a little bit about that going forward. I've mentioned it already in past weeks. We're, we're going to consider and pursue a discipline, a different spiritual discipline each month together. And so today I want to introduce this year of spiritual disciplines by talking about this whole concept of what is a spiritual discipline? Is it even biblical? I mean, it sounds kind of like an oxymoron, doesn't it? Spiritual and discipline together. I mean, discipline has this picture of, of human effort, right? Some kind of legalism, a, a law, this thing you're putting upon yourself. So it doesn't seem to fit with the word spiritual, does it? Well, let's look at 1 Timothy 4 and see what Paul has to say about this whole issue of spiritual disciplines. We read from this letter a little earlier, Jim did, and uh, as we were introducing and praying for the deacons. It's a letter that Paul had written to his young protege, Timothy, who was pastoring at the church in Ephesus. Paul had left him there to lead and shepherd the flock, and Paul was hoping to be able to return soon to him. Paul mentions in 1 Timothy 3.15, as we read earlier, that in case he was delayed in coming back to Timothy, he wrote Timothy this letter. He wrote Timothy so that he may know how one ought to conduct himself in the church of the living God. And then Paul says in the very next verse that the church is the pillar and support of the truth. And so in light of that, throughout the letter, we see several warnings from Paul to Timothy about the dangers of doctrinal error and frivolous teachings and unbiblical myths that were floating around the church. Paul kept bringing that up and warning him and encouraging him to exhort the people first five verses of chapter 4 contain one of those warnings as Paul speaks of those who've been deceived by demonic doctrines. They were saying that true holiness is achieved by self-denial, that you shouldn't get married, that you shouldn't eat certain foods. Sanctification can only be obtained by human effort, they were saying. And then beginning in verse 6, Paul tells Timothy how to respond to this. And if you would please stand as I read 1 Timothy 4, I'm going to read verses 6 through 10 in honor of the word of God. Paul responds there, verse 6, chapter 4, by saying, In pointing out these things, speaking to Timothy, to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. 
We again ask the Lord to bless his word. Father, we do pray for insight and understanding that your spirit would open our eyes so that we may see Christ in a greater way so that we would, as a result, exalt him by how we respond. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so these first five verses, verses 6 through 10, are actually part of a larger section, part of Paul's response to Timothy. And, and in his response, he was giving him very personal and practical instruction on, on how to shepherd, how to be a good servant of Christ Jesus, both in his example to the flock and how he leads the flock. The centerpiece of his instruction is given in verse 7, where Paul says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, or as ESV puts it, train yourself for godliness. In this command, Timothy is told how he can best shepherd the flock, how he can best be an example to the flock. And in this instruction to Timothy, we too have been given really the key to spiritual maturity, to growing in Christ. And as we're going to see, it's not something that just happens. It takes effort. It takes practice. It takes spiritual discipline. In Paul's response, we see here three things. The call to spiritual discipline, verses 6 to 7. The importance of spiritual discipline in verse 8 and 9. And then the motivation for spiritual discipline in verse 10. So let's first look at the call to spiritual discipline. Paul begins in verse 6 by telling Timothy, a good servant of Christ, a minister of Christ Jesus, is one who warns the flock of error. Paul described that error again in verse 3, how some had seen singleness or not eating certain foods as a measure of holiness and sanctification. And Paul says to Timothy, a good shepherd warns the flock of error, any error. And in addition to that, he's also himself nourished by the words of faith and sound doctrine. Nourished there probably to be better has the idea of being trained, trained by the gospel and the, the body of truth that surrounds it as we have in the word of God. We learn here in verse 6 that to be able to discern Satan's tricky teachings, you must know the truth and know it well. You must be well trained in the word of God, Paul tells Timothy, especially if you're a leader. Indeed, that's the most important quality of a leader, that he knows the scripture and the truths of God's word so well that he can sniff out air from a mile away like a hound dog on the hunt. Something doesn't smell right. Paul said something similar in Titus 1.9, that the elders must be men who hold fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both exhort and sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. And I bring this up as kind of a little side trail from the main point I want to cover this morning, because in the church today, there's this, there's this push for leaders to be these great communicators who, who know how to connect with the people who are caring and compassionate, who, who know how to run an organization. And indeed, certainly those are important qualities for a leader to have. But, but often, the most important quality is missed or overlooked or not given priority. It is the leader's role, the pastor's role, the elder's role to feed and protect the flock. That's the primary responsibility. It's what a shepherd would do. He didn't spend all his time petting the sheep and grooming them. He spent most of his time looking for danger. And that is what the leader in Christ's church needs to be. We have to be vigilant, beloved, to keep this as the primary responsibility, that you have this as the chief expectation for your leaders. Amen? 
Paul notes in verse 7 that to feed and protect the flock, a leader must not only warn of error, but he himself can't get caught up in controversies or obscure, mysterious teachings. That was Paul's point in verse 7 when he said that have nothing to do with, or probably, I think more accurately, reject worldly fables, muthos in Greek, myths, or what he calls old wives' tales, irreverent, silly myths. These are what he referred to back in 1 Timothy 1.4 as he said they were strange doctrines, tales of legends, speculations, foolish ideas. It's uh, folks that string together these doctrines and teachings as they take verses from here and there and over there and, and call them together to make some sort of tantalizing doctrine, trying to fill in the white spaces of the Bible. Provocative theories, ideas with no real basis in the Word of God. And they are all over the place, even among us. 2 Timothy 2.23, Paul told Timothy, refuse, same word here, refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. Don't fall into endless debate, beloved, over irrelevant and dangerous speculations. If something sounds very interesting and you've never heard it before, you know what I'm talking about, right? Change the subject. Warn that individual. You're trying to read between the lines of Scripture. Show me from the Bible and don't take me to 14 different verses in 14 different contexts. We have to be careful. Don't pursue meaningless curiosities, things that are to be debated and argued over. If you know folks or if you if you're a person who likes to just debate doctrines of Scripture and you're just interested in in that kind of a thing rather than following and loving the Lord Jesus Christ, understanding his word for the purpose of exalting him, you've got a problem. The Word of God is not given as a textbook to argue over. It is given the very truth of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to seek and save the lost. At best, these types of things promote disunity. At worst, they are demonic, as Paul calls them earlier in chapter 4. So Paul says in verse 7, rather than getting sucked into these things, Timothy, you discipline yourself for godliness, towards godliness, For the purpose of godliness. Again, Paul's giving here the key, I think, to the Christian life. The word discipline there is gymnazo. It's it's the same, shares the same root that we get the word gymnasium from. And that's what the word has to do with. Athletics. It speaks of the rigorous training and sacrifice and effort that's required by an elite athlete. In fact, I like how Pastor Kent Hughes describes this. He says it's a word with the smell of the gym in it. The sweat of a good workout. It's a good loose stone word, I think. Gumnazo. <laughs> Ephesus was known as a place of, that put a great importance upon athletics, especially among young men. They even had a high-ranking city official whose responsibility was to oversee the training of these young men. And just as so many of the young men of Ephesus, they disciplined themselves for the purpose of athletic achievement, to, to get fit so too Timothy was to train himself for the purpose of godliness. And that word godliness is an important word for Paul. In fact, of the 15 occurrences of that word in the New Testament, 13 were by Paul, nine of them in 1 Timothy alone. Classical Greek, the word carried the idea of a, of a reverence, of a piety towards the gods or towards parents or rulers or judges or even the law. In Roman culture, it meant a dutiful respect that was given to a deity or to the empire or to one's family. 
in the New Testament, godliness describes this awe, this reverence for God, this, this deep respect for things holy, an inward conviction that reflects in itself in a life of reverence and active obedience to God. In short, really, it's to pursue Christ's likeness. In fact, notice what Paul said earlier. He defined godliness as seen ultimately in Christ. Back in verse 16, where he says, by common, verse 16 of chapter 3, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He, who's he talking about here? The Lord Jesus Christ, who was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Jesus is the epitome of godliness. He's the standard. He's the object. He's the goal. The godly life. To be godly is to be like Jesus. The purpose for which God has saved us. Titus 2.11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Salvation has been brought so that we would live godly lives. So Paul tells Timothy, gymnasticize or discipline yourself to be godly, to be like Christ, so that you can be an effective shepherd within the flock. The attentive Greek student who's reading these verses in his Greek Bible would notice that the verbs and the nouns, the pronouns, excuse me, are second person masculine singular, which means Paul is directing these instructions to Timothy, to Timothy specifically. But we mustn't think that the call to discipline is just for Timothy, is it? We mustn't think that it's just for pastors, that that leaders, they're the only ones that God wants to be godly. Is that right? I hope you say no. They aren't the only ones that he wants to be like Christ, are they? No, he wants all of us. Titus 2.11 again says that Jesus brought salvation to all, instructing all of us to be godly in the present age. Romans 8.29 says, Those whom God foreknew, that is those whom he has saved, these he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. And so that is why we have been saved. Simply means this. God has saved us to be like Jesus. That's it. That's it. He wants his children to be godly. He wants all the redeemed to look like Jesus Christ. If you're looking for the purpose of salvation, it is that. It is that all believers be holy. This pursuit of Christ's likeness, this pursuit of godliness, it's not to be casual. It's not to be careless, half-hearted. That word discipline, again, it carries the smell of the gym. It connotes effort, sweat, strain, striving. That's what it connotes. And when, so when Paul says gymnasticize yourself towards godliness by using this athletic term, he knew Timothy would understand exactly what he was talking about. He knew those who were listening, this letter being read to Timothy would know exactly what he was talking about. That he understood that word carried with it. Hard work, dedication, effort, the, the kind of effort that athletes put into this ultimate training. In fact, notice later in verse 10, the words labor. And strive. Or in verse 15, he says, take pains. In verse 16, persevere. These all present a picture here of this is painful workout. This is pushing yourself beyond your limit. Physical strain and suffering. It is total dedication to reach your goal. That's the theme here. That's the tone. 
And those of you who have pushed yourself physically know exactly what I'm talking about, right? I remember many times in my training to run marathons. And yes, to look at me, you'd never believe that was actually the case. But I did at one point in my life. And as I trained, those, there were times of pain and suffering. There were times spent heaving into a bush or into a garbage can. There were times where my body said, enough, are you crazy? I still remember a few days even lying on the ground and watching the sky spinning around me because I was so just beyond physically where I should have done. But beloved, that is how we are to pursue godliness. That's Paul's point. Push yourself like a driven athlete, focused on one goal, to be like the Lord Jesus Christ, to honor him in your life and by what you do and what you say. To push yourself beyond what you thought you could endure. To strain, to exert, to strive, to push. 1 Corinthians 9.26 Paul gives this testimony in regards to his efforts in pursuing the gospel ministry. When he says, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline, and here it's a different word, but it has the idea of, of torment, of wearing down. I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. So, beloved, I would ask you, would you say this is the kind of effort you give to pursue a godly life? Would you say that you're fervent in that pursuit to be holy? Is this the kind of effort and passion that you have to be like Jesus? Again, godliness is effort. Persistence, strain. Well, hold on a second, Tim. Wait a minute. Are you telling me, you know, this sounds a lot like legalism, human effort, working on your own to achieve holiness. Isn't it a work of grace? Isn't godliness something that God has to do in me? I can't make myself holy. To say otherwise, that would be relying on the flesh, wouldn't it? Doesn't it need to be let go and let God? Well, it's true that we are only saved by God's grace and that ultimately we are only sanctified by his grace. But listen, don't take God's wonderful grace to mean that the Christian life is passive. That it's all by his grace so I can just sit here, I can wait for the sanctification jolt, the, the holy zap, the, the, the mature Christian pill, the miraculous minute to maturity. I think that's how many times we look at the Christian life. That's like expecting you can run 26 miles while having done nothing to prepare for it. Yes, godliness is by God's grace. But relying on His grace is to rely on the means in which He gives that grace. God's grace comes through means. Means that He has prescribed. Ways that He has designed in order to provide that grace to move you towards a godly life. Paul understood this better than anyone else. Of anybody you read in Scripture, besides our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul was one who gave great effort and, and strain in his service to God, right? I mean, just, you read through his letters, you read through Acts, this guy put himself through the ringer in serving the Lord Jesus. And at the same time, though, he understood that that effort was by God's grace. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored. 
I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Do you catch what Paul's saying there? He says, I labored more than anyone else. I worked hard. I suffered. I toiled. I exerted myself. But, but at the end of the day, it was the grace of God and not me. He said in Colossians 1.29 in regards to his mission to make disciples. For this purpose I labor, striving. There's those words again. According to the power which mightily works within me. See, Paul is telling us there, it's not let go and let God. It is grab hold and let God. It's active. You exert all labor, energy, and diligence and efforts to use the means that he has provided, the ways that he has designed for you to receive his gracious work in your life in growing towards Christ-likeness. For just as sitting on a couch watching people run and wanting to run yourself won't make it happen, so too, sitting in the pew wishing to be godly will not get you there. If you do nothing in regards to your sanctification, then nothing will happen. You have to use the means God provides. And beloved, these means are the spiritual disciplines. The consistent practices designed by God. The ways that He has given us to bring us to godliness. To help conform us to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And among the chief of those disciplines is the Word of God. That's really the primary context here in 1 Timothy 4. That Paul told Timothy, don't waste time with, with myths, but train yourself towards godliness. In the context here, he's saying the opposite of bad doctrine is to pursue good doctrine. Later in 1 Timothy 6.3, he says, If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he's conceited and understands nothing. You see, God works chiefly by his spirit through his word. And we can't tell ourselves enough, remind ourselves enough that our constant athletic diet, if you will, our spiritual diet needs to be to understand and know his word. That's why we spent the year 2014 encouraging all of us to read through the scriptures together. God's given us a host of spiritual disciplines to help get us there, to know His Word, to live it out. These include, but aren't limited to, meditating on the Word of God, memorizing it, reading it, studying it, prayer, confession, service, evangelism, praise of God, fasting, purity, giving, and many, many more. Many, many more disciplines. Again, these are the the means, the tools in which God works His grace in us. Don Whitney concludes in his book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, which I'd highly recommend. He says, the spiritual disciplines then are like channels of God's transforming grace. As we place ourselves in them to seek communion with Christ, his grace flows to us and we are changed. That's why the disciplines must become priority for us if we would be godly. We're going back to our text in 1 Timothy In addition to the call to spiritual discipline, Paul also describes the importance of it. Look with me again at verse 8. He says there, For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. See here in verse 8, it begins with the word for. Paul here is showing us the reason for his exhortation of verse 7. That it is based on the great importance of godliness. Notice he strikes a comparison here, right? Between two things. Between bodily discipline and godliness. 
In fact, those first two lines in the Greek text are almost parallel one another, both grammatically and, and in the vocabulary used. Paul's reference to bodily discipline or gymnasia harkens back to the image again of the athlete in training. Paul says that, that the exercising the body does have a little benefit. It has some benefit, some profit. Indeed, training for a marathon or, or lifting weights or swimming laps, all of these do pay off health-wise, don't they? For the most part, you'll feel better. Your body will function a little more efficiently. You'll have a better quality of life. You can even eat more junk food without feeling guilty. These are all good things. They're all benefits, but they're only temporary, right? And you can see in my case, you know, I ran thousands of miles. I added them up. I can't even go hardly two miles now without being, you know, out of breath. Think of Arnold Schwarzenegger. He had some pretty massive biceps and deltoids, right? But what about now? You know, those things are just sagging. You know, the body ages. The benefits of all that training don't last. That's Paul's point. That phrase he uses of little profit means that it's temporary. It's only for a while. It's the same phrase found in James 4.14 where he says, You do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while. And then vanishes away. Again, Paul is setting up here in verse 8 a contrast. Though there is some benefit to hard physical training, godliness, on the other hand, has unlimited benefit. It's profitable for all things. Bodily discipline has some benefit on the outside. Godliness has great benefit on the inside. Bodily discipline only lasts for a short time, but godliness extends into eternity. Bodily discipline may give some reward, some accomplishment in this life, but godliness gives great reward in this life, and Paul says, the life to come. In fact, that phrase at the end of verse 8 literally reads, holding the promise of life, the now and the to come. Paul says first here that there's benefit to godliness in this life. There's benefit to godliness in this life. Follow me for a second here. At the moment... At the moment of your repentance, when you recognize that you're a sinner standing before God, that, that you have committed wickedness against Him, that you've rebelled against Him, and you desire to confess that sin and turn from it and put your trust in the Lord Jesus, the moment that you do that, you're given eternal life. Right? Didn't God promise that? John 3.16 Whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal everlasting life. And that life, that eternal life, is fellowship with Christ. Fellowship with God in Christ. That eternal life is abiding in Christ. It's an experience, a reality, a fellowship, a communion that doesn't happen after you die. It happens the moment that God saves you. You experience eternal life from the moment of conversion on And as you discipline yourself towards godliness, as you strive by God's grace to be holy, to to pursue Christ's likeness, Paul says that you can more fully experience that eternal life now. 1 John 2.24 says, As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise which He Himself made to us, eternal life. Talking there of the experience of that eternal life abiding in Him. And as you stay faithful to gospel truth, as you pursue a godly life, you will experience a greater intimacy with Christ even in this life. 
You'll experience the blessing of peace and contentment and joy and satisfaction in knowing Him even in the midst of trials. Spurgeon, in talking about this passage and the promise of the life now, says this, Let me show you what I think is the promise of the life that now is. I believe it to be an inward happiness, which is altogether independent of outward circumstances. It is something richer than wealth, fairer than health, and more substantial than fame. This secret of the Lord, this deep delight, this calm repose, godliness, always brings in proportion as it reigns in the heart. Disciplining yourself for the purpose of godliness holds promise for this present life, as Spurgeon just described. But also, Paul adds, it holds promise for the life to come. For you you know what you do in this life has eternal implications, right? You know what you do in this life on earth before you die has an impact, not only in your life, but the lives of others, right? In eternity. Christianity is not like a club membership where you just got to do things to get in the club and then you can coast the rest of the way to heaven. No responsibilities in the meantime. Christianity is not just accepting Christ. It is following Christ, right? Christianity is its not just changing what you do on Sundays. It is changing what you do every day for the rest of your life. Christianity is not just a ticket to heaven. It's an entrance into a relationship, right? It's not just a one-time prayer of belief. It is a lifetime of commitment to worship. Again, salvation is not the end. It's the beginning. It's the beginning of your journey towards holiness. It's the start of that path towards godliness. A path that will impact your eternal reward. 2 Corinthians 5.9 says, Therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Again, what we do in this life echoes in the next. John MacArthur said, your godliness is the only thing you take with you for eternity. You know, we've all heard about the, you'll never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul, right? That, that you can't take it with you, that what goes in the coffin stays in the coffin. But John's right, there is only one thing that you do bring with you. What you have done for Christ. Your godly deeds. So again, the question we must all ask ourselves, are you disciplining yourself towards godliness? How much work, think about this, how much work and effort are you putting in to your walk with Christ? What receives most of your effort? It's athletic accomplishment, uh, fitness, job success, looks, uh, some life milestone, a hobby, an achievement. What, what is it that you are driven towards? Is it something that will only have a little profit, maybe some benefit for a time? Or is it something that will allow you to experience your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ in a, a more a rich and full way? Paul says in verse 9 that the greater benefit of training for godliness is, is patently obvious. It's a no-brainer, he's saying. If you compare the two, he's saying it's no contest. Again, the key question then is, does your life reflect that you believe that? Do you really believe that the effort and time and energy you put in to be like Jesus, that that is of greater benefit and value than whatever else it is that you might put that effort into? Okay, I know we're kind of going over time here a little bit, but let's look at the last point here quickly. We've looked at the call to spiritual discipline, the importance of it. Let's consider thirdly the motivation. Look at verse 10. 
Paul says, for it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Again, did you notice those words there? Labor, strive. That word labor means uh, toil, exertion, working to the point of exhaustion. Strive here can mean either to engage in a contest or to fight, to struggle. And so, again, these words emphasize together an intense, excruciating, even painful effort. And the question is, an effort towards what? What is the this here that Paul is talking about when he says, for this he labors and strives? Some say it is his missionary endeavors, the spread of the gospel, his ministry to the churches. That's the idea from the passage I read earlier in Colossians 1, 29, where Paul says, for this purpose also I labor, striving. He's talking there about making disciples. And indeed, that could be the case here. But I think given the context in 1 Timothy, a stronger case could be made that Paul is describing his efforts in pursuing godliness. For that was the emphasis to Timothy in verses 7 and 8, right? Discipline yourself toward godliness. And then in verse 9, Paul says it's a trustworthy statement that godliness is of greater benefit than bodily discipline. And so here in verse 10, I think to further encourage Timothy, saying, Timothy, for this I am striving, I am laboring, I am toiling, I am making efforts, painful efforts in my pursuit of godliness so that I might experience the fullness, greater fullness of the blessings of eternal life both now and and in eternity. Paul's saying, I'm so convinced of this truth that I push myself to the limit. Notice verse 10, though. Paul's quick to point out something. He's quick to point out that the motivation here to do that is not in himself. He didn't see this pursuit of holiness as something you just grit your teeth and gut it out for. He didn't see training himself for godliness as a legalistic endeavor or or the spiritual disciplines as some sort of necessary burden. Don Whitney said in his book, discipline without direction is drudgery. And indeed, he's right. If you go on a path of discipline, you don't have a goal in front of you. It can be very a bummer, be difficult. And indeed, if we see the spiritual disciplines as just something that the Bible requires, something we have to do, that the only way to be holy and sanctified is to to beat myself into submission, whether I like it or not. But that misses the whole point, doesn't it? That overlooks having a right motivation, having a right object of our hope. Notice in verse 10, the middle of it, he says, because, because we have fixed our hope permanent condition fixed our hope on the living god paul didn't look to himself for strength he looked to god paul didn't have a bumper sticker you know on his chariot that read you know gutting it out for godliness his hope rested upon god the god who gives eternal life the one who is the source of life lord jesus christ in fact john 1 1 says in Christ is life. Or John 11, Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Or in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. First John 5.20 says, Jesus is the true God and eternal life. He embodies eternal life. He's the source of eternal life. So Paul says, you know what? I push, I strive, I struggle because my hope is in the one who gives life, eternal life, the one who sustains life, the one who is life. Theologian George Knight said this, 
Because godliness has the promise of life, we labor and struggle ultimately because our hope is fixed on the living God who can give such life as the Savior of all who believe. So again, my question to you, beloved, is do you want to experience God's grace in your life to its fullest measure? Do you want that? Do you want to know Jesus more intimately? Do you want to be more like him? Do you want to have a greater contentment and peace and joy no matter what is going on in your life, whether good or bad? Do you want more joy? Anybody here? Do you want more joy? Joy in Christ? Do you want to have a greater impact for him in your family, your job, your neighborhood, those around you? Then have your hope fixed on a God who will give you these in abundance as you trust him, as you follow his prescription by disciplining yourself for godliness. Embrace the spiritual disciplines and God will unleash his grace in your life. Amen? And know that God has designed these disciplines in such a way that they're not just something we pursue as individuals. I think a lot of times we look at spiritual disciplines that way. Like, okay, I got to read my Bible. I got to spend some time in prayer. I need to do some evangelism. I need to obey in these ways. I, I, I. But you know, beloved, again, we're part of a body. We pursue them not only as individuals, but also corporately. In fact, let me show you this. We're going to close in this text. Acts 2.42. It's a familiar passage. If you could turn there for just a moment. Acts 2.42, it serves as a model for us as we strive forward in this year of spiritual disciplines. Again, this verse comes right after Peter had exhorted the people to repent. And over 3,000 souls were added that day. 3,000 people who came to know and trust the Lord Jesus, the risen Lord who had died for our sins. Acts 2.42, we read what these new believers began to do. It says there that they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. They began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. And it goes on. You know, when this passage is discussed, often the focus is on what the early church did, but not so much on the manner in which they did it. Indeed, they were in the Word. They were listening to sermons. They were taking communion together, praying with one another, spending time with each other, sharing the gospel, taking care of needs. They were doing all of these things, as is described there. But did you notice the way in which they were doing them? These were not infrequent or irregular events that just took place once in a while. They weren't relegated to an occasional occurrence when time permitted. Indeed, these were neither accidental nor incidental. Again, look at the beginning of verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves. That's a present active participle. It means simply this. It was ongoing. It was their practice. It was a continuous action on their part. They were constantly engaged in these things. They were devoted to these things. Do you realize in a sense, essentially, they were practicing church or church discipline, spiritual disciplines. Probably that was part of it too, but... Right? The the early church is showing us here that corporately they were practicing together the spiritual disciplines. As a body of believers, they pursued them continually with passion, 
disciplining themselves for the purpose of godliness. And so, through the course of this coming year, let them be our early brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let them be our example. As we together are continually devoted to the things, the spiritual disciplines that God has given to make us more like Jesus. And so each month we're going to focus on a different discipline. We'll learn about it at the beginning of the month. Ed's going to start us off next week looking at corporate worship. And then for the rest of the month we'll have opportunities and how to apply that as a church. And you'll be given some ways that you can do that as we move forward. And it's my prayer that that God would, this year, through these things, give us a greater passion for godliness. To be holy. To be like Christ. That He would motivate us to strive Effort, effort more than you've ever done in your life towards being like his son. So that at the end of the day, his son, Jesus, would be exalted and enjoyed. Amen. Let's pray. Father, much to say, I I pray, Lord, that only your words would remain in our minds and hearts and that we will be motivated because of our hope in you the living God, motivated to pursue godliness, to pursue being like Christ, to look to Him as our example and follow Him in every way and that relying on Your Spirit just as He did to be like Him. I pray, God, You would use this year of spiritual disciplines, Lord, as as not something that uh, becomes a drudgery or... Uh, some kind of legalistic effort, but Lord, just that we would see the means in which you've provided to do your amazing work in us and to bring us to spiritual maturity and to experience the blessing of eternal life more so now in this life and also in the life to come. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for your grace to bring us where you desire us to be. We pray in the name of our Savior. Amen.